Our chronological look at the career of Carol Kane continues on Praising Kane with Joan Micklin Silver's Hester Street. Hi, everybody. I'm your esteemed host and guide, Liam O'Donnell, and with me is my co-host and spiritual guru, Doug Tilly. Doug, how is life right now? Crap, Liam. It's real bad, but yeah. uh, we're, we are not going to focus on it again in recent podcasts. I've said we're going to try to stay optimistic. We're going to try to stay positive, so I'm not going to talk about how life is hell and the world is on fire. No, things are not that great. On the grand scale, but personally, they're 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 stable. And you know what? Stable in 2020, I'll take stable. I hear you, Doug, and I'm glad that you're not whining as you usually like to do, because this show is not about the whining of a Canadian, but the winning of an actress, Carol Kane. I realize I don't oh actually God, know where Carol Kane is from. Where is she from? Not Canada. I can tell you that much. Well, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> Hence, I was I was discounting your uh, your actually much. Much justified and not whining at all, uh, complaining about life. I hear you, man. Uh, lots of bad news lately, man. Lots of bad news. Was not expecting that. Was expecting to have a really good, easy introduction to October. As you know, I'm one of these nerds that uh, celebrates Halloween, usually for all of October. I started mid-September, but I haven't been able to do that much. And it's been, it's been uh, mostly because of small frustrations and minor tragedies so that's mm. great that's cool uh i really enjoy that however it doesn't matter because halloween here... is canceled this year liam i heard that i heard that <laughs> and i don't accept it i don't accept it are you saying that children should go out on the street on halloween and uh and trick-or-treat oh no i hate children and i don't want them to come to my house i've actually boiled some oil in preparation I don't think that that's true. Well, I want to know your feelings on this. Now, this is a rather controversial subject. I mean, some parents are like, look, they're going to be wearing masks anyway. Stupid. That that statement in and of itself is proof that these people are idiots. <laughs> they're not wearing – almost no kids are wearing masks that will protect them from a disease. Almost no. Maybe some will, but most will not. Second of all, they always end up congregating in large groups. They don't stay apart. There's no social distancing with children during trick-or-treat. And finally, like, come on. If even one of those houses has someone who's I know. infected. I know, you're getting, right? It's not – you're going to risk all of our lives for a Mars bar? Just go buy your kid a bag of candy. Just okay. imagine the potential number of infections from a single popular house, right? I mean, just like the one person in there, they refuse to wear a mask. They're answering the door, and they're giving out the high-quality treats. And this person, you know, could theoretically spread it to hundreds of kids. I mean, the the there was just a piece in The Atlantic about testing and how we're doing this wrong and all that stuff. And, and that's what it boils down to, Doug, is that it's actually less important the we have these rules that limit everyone's uh things it we could have totally avoided all of this frustration for all of the freedom loving americans but they would have had to sacrifice another freedom and it would have been another cost which is mass testing of everyone yeah and then when someone's sick they gotta stay home the rest of us can just live our lives that's actually how you control this disease you know like that's that's borne out by the numbers and the science. But, and but the thing is, the other way that. is how you had to start until they found a faster way to test. And once sure. they have the faster way to test, then you're right. Mass testing is I, what it would take. I, I mean, mean every time we're not even to... really doing fast testing here. Like no. the testing we do here sucks, and it's not widely available. But like, if it was fast enough that you know you you could swab a cheek every time someone went to a movie theater. And you could get a result right then. Well, then you could start going to movie theaters again because he'd know if yeah. someone had infected or not. Oh, hey, Tom, you got to go home. You got the you got the thing. Also, oh, the uh, friends that you came with should probably go home too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, anyways, we're not here to talk about disease. We're not here to talk about Carol Kane, her illustrious career. And uh, in this episode, we'll be talking about 1975's Hester Street. Before we do that, though, Doug, we have some recent news involving the true goddess carol kane that we're about to discuss one of those is that on september 13th there was a virtual table read for princess bride doug i know you hate the princess bride how does this make you feel i don't hate the princess bride what you lied what about that tattoo on your chest that <laughs> says i hate princess bride yeah yeah no i regret that every day since getting it two days ago uh no you know it's 
it's weird because the princess bride in some ways is exactly the sort of material material growing up i probably wouldn't have liked in that it's you know it's a little kind of too self-indulgent and self-aware and very meta but i just think it's so such a charming movie and a charming book and the adaptation is so nice and peter falk is in it so you know there's all sorts of things that i like about the princess bride i even believe it or not liam i'm almost embarrassed to say it. Uh, do you know what quibi is <laughs> Oh, I am well aware of Quibi, yes. (laughs) Well, for those who don't know, Quibi is a streaming service where you can watch videos. Basically, they're designed to be watched on your phone. Uh, So, uh, and it's it's notoriously was a very unsuccessful project for a whole bunch of different reasons. But one of the things that was available on it was a remake of The Princess Bride where different celebrities who were in quarantine were filming themselves doing the parts of all the characters. And it became this incredible all-star event. And it was split into like different episodes. And I watched that whole thing. And I have to say, I found it very entertaining and very fun. And it reminded me why I liked The Princess Bride so much. So though I, and I have to admit it here, did not pay to see this virtual Princess Bride reunion. And I have a good reason for that. Um, I was very happy to see that it was uh, occurring. Now, the reason, Liam... And even leading up to this episode, I was going to check out a virtual Princess Bride reunion because you can kind of pay what you can as a donation to this um, this Democratic uh, fundraiser. It says when you go to the page that you have to promise that you are an American before you can do the donation. Oh, yeah, because of, because of the political aspect of it. Yeah. So I, as a Canadian, have been locked out of a virtual Princess Bride reunion. But I was very excited about it because it does have... The original cast uh, almost in completion, uh, aside from Andre the Giant, who is no longer with us. But Mm -hmm. it did include, of course, Carol Kane. Well, despite what I think are its many flaws, I also love The Princess Bride. In fact, I have now seen it sort of in a repertory sense in in theaters multiple times. It is one of those cheap... Uh, cheap repertory pulls that shouldn't make money, but I'm more than willing to give my money to see it because I love it. Uh, I think it's got some corny aspects to it and whatever, but I'm at the point now where I've seen it enough times that the parts I think are bad are part of the fun. And, you know, I uh, think about those parts that you say are bad? Yeah. I think that's inconceivable. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh, I, now, I didn't sign up for Quibi, a truly offensive platform, just so I could watch those clips. But many of those clips uh, of the Princess Bride remake did make their way illegally onto TikTok. So I have seen parts of them uh, because of the glory that is TikTok. And I and I think TikTok users who stole them for that. Uh, I also didn't do this virtual table read uh, because, as I revealed to you when we were going over the notes for this episode, I didn't realize it had happened. <laughs> um, I, I had been hearing about it for a while, primarily because it made Ted Cruz very angry, which brings me heaps of joy. Uh, so I, I guess was Ted excited. Cruz was under the impression that the entire cast of The Princess Bride, including a very vocal Rob Reiner, <laughs> were somehow secret Republicans. I mean, Ted Cruz seems to be one of these people who thinks everyone is a Republican until they reveal that they're part of the evil cabal known as Democrats, apparently. So... Whatever, that dude sucks. Point is, um, it did feature uh, uh, an amazing uh, ability to get everyone together who's still alive, uh, and also a Q&A moderated by Patton Oswalt. It just sounds like a good time. I'm sorry I missed it. Uh, the other uh, recent Carol Kane news is apparently Carol Kane joined an illustrious uh, group of people from Lewis Black to uh, Renee Elise <laughs> Goldsberry. Uh, you laugh. Okay, you're laughing right now. I was about to say Molly Shannon, too. I love Lewis Black. I really Look, I, I like Lewis Black a lot. It's just that, you know, in 2020, when you start naming this illustrious cast and you start with Lewis Black, it is a little bit amusing to me. That's all. Stop. Look, okay, here's the thing. Star of if Jacob's Ladder? <laughs> if, you're, if you're out there and you see Lewis Black and you don't immediately smile, you are a monster and I don't want to know you. How about that? All right. You're you're a real uh, blackhead. <laughs> I, I I literally watched some corny internet video today that featured a number of likable people from um from um oh you're gonna have to oh boy this. this is what great is his stuff. name <laughs> fuck my brain you know this happens to me sometimes uh, Doug where my brain just stops working because it's yeah like an no I know moment. I podcast a lot with you Liam <laughs> this, this must be a big star though I can't mm, wait to hear the, the guy <laughs> no the guy who's on the guy who's on CNN. Okay. Uh, who who was a comedian who used to have his own show? He's an African American gentleman. Mm-hmm. He's a very political comedian. 
Uh, people, he jokes, often mistake him for Questlove, though I don't think he looks anything like Questlove. Oh, uh, W. Camo Bell? Yes, thank you. Uh, there was a, a funny like video uh, about Karens featuring W. Camo Bell, Sarah Silverman, uh, other recognizable people, and that's all fine, but when Louis Black showed up, I lost my shit. <laughs> I was just like, yes, there he is. The man has come out of hiding to yell about something, and it makes me happy. Okay, so what is this podcast you're asking? Well, uh the uh it looks like it's just called the pack podcast yeah is um various famous people uh doing what would turn out to be like short comedic plays written by eugene pack emmy nominated uh drama desk winner eugene pack a gentleman i've never heard of but i was just gonna i was gonna put you on the spot and be like what's your favorite eugene pack project liam i don't i don't <laughs> i don't think that hard doug i'm willing to admit when i don't know people uh but yeah uh he's had he has uh people like michael zegan oscar nunez scott adsit um uh i don't know who that one person is uh tracy chimo <laughs> <laughs> point point is is that it's a podcast it's a dramatic narrative podcast um it's from what i understand all available now uh and the episode featuring carol kane is called sandwich man doug you are a true carol kane head you're really as much as i host this show you're the real inspiration <laughs> the real like you know engine behind the show surely you listen to sandwich man what was it like uh, I was unable to listen to Sandwich Man, even though there is a link on the website. For some reason, it didn't work for me, but I will check it out. Uh, it's it, this. It's kind of weird to describe this as a podcast. It's really just a series of short plays, which I know some podcasts are in that form. But um, like apparently, they release them in packs as opposed to like weekly or monthly or something like that. But I will put in the show notes a link uh, to the Pack Podcast site, which is pa- thepackpodcast.org. Well, despite your horrible naysaying you just did, I am excited for the pack. I'm going to listen to every episode, uh, and especially What was my naysaying? <laughs> <laughs> Look, we're used to your negative tone and your negative <laughs> insinuations using your Canadianness all over this podcast, but no, it doesn't matter. Enough. We forgive you because after the break, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about Hester Street starring who? Carol Kane. Other people as well. 1975. Oscar-nominated Carol Kane. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she was nominated. We're going to talk about it. We'll be right back. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye to the boy. May you have a boy of your own one day. For my own oil and God's own. To have a son, a man must have a wife. A wife you can get. The one that I would ask. What if she would say no? What if she would say yes? Mrs. Mrs. What are you doing? I'm saying yes. Gittel, played by Carol Kane, has just arrived in America from Russia with her son. She's come to meet her husband, Jake, Stephen Keats, who's been in the States for some time and is comfortably settled. While Gittle struggles to find her place in this country, she clashes with Jake, who has fully embraced their new homeland and is also a dickhead. I added that last part, but that is the plot of Hester Street, 1975. Director is Joan Micklin Silver, uh, who you may know from Crossing Delancey, Loverboy, and A Fish in the Bathtub. I'll be honest, I've never seen any of these things. I didn't know this director at all. This was my introduction to them. Uh, Written... By Joe Micklin Silver, but based on the 1896 uh, novella, uh, Yekel, A Tale of the New York Ghetto, by Abraham, uh, do you say that's Kahane or Kahan? Boy, I'll, I'll let you take that one. Kahn? <laughs> Kahn? Uh, I don't know. Uh, by Abraham C. Uh, starring, as we already said, Stephen Keats and Carol Kane, but also uh, Mel Howard and... Uh, Dory Cavanaugh, Doris Roberts, Lauren Friedman, Zane Lasky. 
uh, you know, a, a ton of people who I didn't know who they were. Well, certainly you knew who Doris Roberts was. Um, sure, sure, sure. But there was a there was a lot of people. This is this was the sort of production where I th- there weren't a lot of people that I was like, oh, of course, oh yeah, oh yeah, them. Um, it, Wait, I'm I, sorry I, to interrupt, but you know what's also kind of notable about this cast? What? Like they're all dead except for Cal Kane. Like every lead actor it's in this very movie. Stra- it's actually very strange. I noticed the same thing. Yeah, it was very disconcerting as I was going through it. I was like, I knew that Doris Roberts had passed away. I hadn't really seen Stephen Keats or wasn't very aware of him, but he passed away young. Mel Howard passed away young. Just, just like, it seemed like there's this movie was a little cursed in terms of that. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little weird, um, especially since uh, in her uh, Oscar outfit, Carol Kane looks like a witch. But we'll get oh, to that in a second. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Carol Kane was nominated for uh, best actress uh, for this role. And in 2011, this film was deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant by the Library of Congress and was selected from the National Film Registry, which, side note, is a little strange, right? Because I just feel like a lot of movies should probably be in the National Film Registry. You know, it's when I hear about something getting chosen, I'm always kind of like, okay, but there's probably a million movies that should be in there. I don't know. Maybe that's just my. I I do think this one leans heavier towards the culturally significant part of it. Right. That's true. That's true. That's true. Um, there's a, probably a lot to explore here, whether it's uh, Carol Kane being nominated for an Oscar or the fact that this movie came out uh, before Dog Day Afternoon, but she had already filmed Dog Day Afternoon. Um, there's there's a lot to delve into, but I think we should probably start, Doug, with what did you think of Hester Street? I had a lot of trouble with it at first. Now, we didn't mention this movie is shot in black and white. Not that we have any problem with that. That's actually a, an aesthetic choice that I really appreciate because of it being set in the late 1800s. Um, but the immigrants coming to America story um, is one that we've probably seen many times in various forms. For some reason, my brain is thinking an American tale right now, as opposed to any other movies, but there's a lot of different variations on that. And this particular one of the Jewish experience in America, in New York city, in the turn of the century, the first half of it, we spend all of this time with this Jake character before well, maybe not the first half, maybe the first 30 minutes before uh, Carol Kane's character arrives. And he's kind of, I mean, he's a real, as you said, he's a real dick. And he's transparently kind of a bad person. So they really spend a long time establishing the kind of heel this person is. And that's that's a little difficult when you have to spend that much time with someone who isn't like overtly un- unpleasant in that he's not like a villainous, um, you know, mustache twirling bad guy. But he's kind of believably a jerk. And so when she arrives, he's so cold and unpleasant to her. And all you kind of want is to hit, for him to get his comeuppance in some way. But I wasn't really expecting it to happen. So that this movie then goes in the direction of kind of Carol Kane kind of uh, in the background reasserting herself as a person in this new country, you know, in some ways giving up part of her old self in order to do it, even though she's very resistant to it. But then... Not only taking control of her life, but like taking control of this situation with her husband and ending up in a much happier place. I have to say that by the end, I really did gain a a strong appreciation and like for this movie. And almost all of that comes from Cal Kane's performance and some of the supporting performances. Not that there's anything wrong with uh, the performance of Stephen Keats as Jake. It's just that I felt like the movie was going to be from his point of view. And maybe it's because this was written and directed by a woman, which is a kind of a unique thing for the mid 1970s. But the fact that this has more of a slightly progressive and I would say even feminist take on it is what made me kind of uh, really like it by the end. I, uh, well, I certainly agree that it's understandable that Carol Kane got nominated and uh, for her role, she really shines. I would say that it's not understandable. Not because she's not good in the role, Liam, and I'm sorry that I'm stepping all over you, but I'm feeling kind of passionate about this now. But it's just because this is such a small movie, right? It's hard to believe this movie found enough of an audience to gain enough of a groundswell for her to get that nomination, considering that she was, in the grand scheme, a completely unknown quantity. I think it had to do with the fact that this movie was marketed in a very unique way. It was distributed in a very unique way. And because of... Uh, everyone recognized that she gave such a strong performance. It was this kind of grassroots campaign to get her noticed. And it really kind of brought her to the stardom that I never, I mean, seeing her in other movies, we knew that she was talented, but without this, who knows if Carol Kane would ever have become like a mainstream star. I, I'm not convinced that, uh, that 
she wouldn't have gotten a little bit of shine from Dog Day Afternoon, even though that's mm. not a huge role. That was such a an important movie to people. Um, what I was going to say before you cut me off, Doug, is <laughs> I was going to say it's not a surprise she got nominated in comparison to the rest of the cast. And I'm not saying that everyone is bad in this, but so much of the movie rests on her. You know, if the I feel like the landlady is pretty good. I felt like the housemaid is pretty good, but none of those roles are important enough to save the movie from the Stephen Keats character. And that's, again, that's not about a bad performance. It's just the reality is that if the story had revolved only around him and his perspective, this would have been a truly intolerable movie. And I find the beginning part, even though I immediately understood, like, okay, where this is going, I, I, before she was even introduced, I knew who Carol Kane was going to play. Mm-hmm. Like, all this stuff was sort of set out. That still didn't help me. Like, that entire beginning part of the movie, I just find him insufferable. He's not, for me, a charming uh, uh, heel. He is just a heel. And uh, by the time Carol Kane gets there, it takes a while for her to, as her character, to open up and grow and become sort of a more interesting uh, human being. At first, she is understandably a bit of a wilting flower because she's in this new world and her anchor in this world is this guy who is not showing her any compassion, any love, and refuses to actually help her assimilate. I think because the more that she assimilates, the more he has to admit that he is actually married. That that part of his, by her being a part of the past, he can almost live in a fantasy that he is not actually married. That Absolutely. somehow this marriage doesn't exist the way that other things exist, like uh, the woman who it's unclear if he's attracted to her or her three hundred dollars. You know, it's just not clear what part of that relationship is attracted to him. So but he's also a complete hypocrite, right? Because when she right. does, you know, at, at his suggestion, like there's a part where they're laying in bed and he's telling her that she has to, you know, uh, to, to change herself from her uh, more traditional leanings, like wearing a wig or wearing a veil or whatever. And she later in the movie. She takes off the wig. She uses her natural hair, gets it styled, and he comes home. And when he sees it, he loses his mind and starts beating her. And actually, one of the great things about that, about that particular scene is that uh, Doris Roberts, who, I mean, I know her from Everybody Loves Raymond. I think a lot of people probably connect her with that sitcom more than a lot of her other roles. But in that one scene, she is really a force of nature. She's pretty amazing. And it's kind of her showcase piece in the movie as a whole, her defending uh, uh, Giddle in that s- sequence, but boy, really puts uh, Jake's character makes him look like a complete hypocrite tool. But I, but I actually would argue that's the point that I'm making is that it reveals the real thing here, which is that she, she, he needs her to be the joke that he's made of his yes. of his housemate. He needs her to be this thing from the past because if she becomes the beautiful, wonderful wife that she seems to actually be, then he has to actually see himself in the mirror for the Mm -hmm. cheating monster that he is. Right now, every time he is unfaithful to her, either physically or even emotionally, it's all justified because she's not American. She's not part of this world. She's from the past. And they they openly mock people from the old world. That's like the first scene, right? Anyone who kind of keeps those tropes within themselves, they mock and and they, they... intentionally make that person uncomfortable to force them to to assimilate it's interesting because i wanted to ask you this do you think that this film at least for this time period if not into the future is a is a unique take on this aspect of the jewish experience which is that um when i've seen films in the past in which uh the particular culture of jewish folks regardless of where they're from but this sort of shared experience comes into contact or in conflict with the world it is a religious conflict it's the idea of like how do mm. we interact with the goy or how do the goy respond to us and our particularity right in this film this is so about america it's not a part uh, it's not about religion in and of itself though that is part of it it's one of the first things i've seen that shows all of these cultural particularities of this group of folks who are jewish but are also 
part of a particular European tradition, right? The Judaism that ties them together might seem foreign to Jewish folks from other parts of the world, or at least not all of it translates. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Yeah. Um, and that particularity is what's butting against America because Jake loves America. And so he wants to be like the Goy, he says again and again. He wants to at least reflect them visually, but it's always about America. It's not actually about jesus it's not about christianity he certainly doesn't want to convert and and he doesn't seem to know a lot of people that aren't jewish anyway he just wants this image of america i can't name another movie that puts it that way that so much takes this stew of uh whiteness and christianity that we sort of force uh that we forced a whole generation of jewish folks to try to conform to and names it american which i think it is i can't name any other movie that does that yeah i mean neither can i certainly offhand and i mean another unique aspect for me is and you you certainly hinted at it is that everything you see in this movie is jewish all of it but by which i mean there's a sequence where a very kind of unique sequence where uh the family go on a picnic and um and Gittle even says out loud, she's like, you say that that this um, America has all of these people in it, but everywhere we go, all the neighborhoods we go to, we only see Jewish people because they're in that neighborhood and they're staying in that neighborhood. But of course, that's also the same sequence where Jake basically tells her to look at him and see if she could tell if he was Jewish, if she didn't know it already. And And I do think that there is a interesting conflict on display here about that idea of assimilation and how much you have to assimilate because you could look at this movie from the perspective that it's somewhat conservative. I mean, Gittle ends up being drawn to Bernstein, the other kind of person living in their household, who's very pious, who, you know, studies the Torah and is very reserved. And and that's something that she's drawn to. And partly it's because he reflects a lot of what she came from, but in kind of one of my favorite sequences in the entire movie, where they go and get their divorce, they go to the rabbi, and I, I love how detailed that whole sequence is. It goes on, but it, but it really, I guess for me, part of it, I don't know, I, I, I don't know if this is a, a negative reflection on me, but it's, a lot of it is the cultural aspects that I'm not as aware of, so seeing it in front of me, I think it's, it, it's really interesting, all the different parts of it, but uh, A, I love that sequence because it really, you know, it really kind of drags Jake over the coals, but it does end with Carol Kane you know, saying that her son should be called Joey. The suggestion is that she has assimilated herself, whether it be her hair, whether it be the use of the names, whether it be learning English, that this is going to be part of her life going forward. And I do wonder what the movie is trying to say in regards to how much assimilation is supposed to be good assimilation versus the idea of holding on to those traditions. I think that's true. I think um, what it makes me think of, too, is this situation that America creates, right? Like that... um, in Europe, the idea of tradition and ethnic identity, right, are inherently conservative. That that the um, the more modern, whether you would say liberal or leftist viewpoints in the European context, is one of um, of a metropolis, of a larger sort of community, of a diversity of identities and of the idea that countries can absorb new peoples without losing that identity right Mm -hmm. that same thing is the basically conservative viewpoint in america right that what happens in america is that suddenly um to stay particular is only protected within a certain kind of leftist viewpoint and that conservatives actually have adopted this new identity that that jake is trying to adopt of being american but then have infused it with particularly white values and then they just expect other people to assimilate and forget who they are and thus also forget who they are that so few of these white americans actually know what it is to be the german or irish or italian sure. mm-hmm. that they were brought up with uh and and often have to hide those particularities or at least tone them down in order to fully participate in the american project and so in a way this this film and i don't know how much the film deviates from the book is a particular commentary on um by uh uh Carol Kane's character, uh, 
determining for herself, I will yes. assimilate in these ways and I will not assimilate in these ways, that that in and of itself is the most progressive way that she could take in that context. And that I thought was really interesting about it, um, that that she makes a decision. She's going to choose to support the scholar uh, and, and really sort of work so he can continue to do this very traditional thing. And yet she's going to do it without the wig and she's going to do it calling her son Joey. And, right. and that's her decision to make. And in that, by by asserting her uh, autonomy and agency, it becomes a incredibly progressive movie within an incredibly uh, regressive framework. It also is a movie that reinforces the strength in not necessarily piousness, but the strength in holding on to tradition to a certain right. extent. Right. Right. That that her strength comes from th- that uh, that ability to decide for herself. So when the movie eventually gets to the point where I guess it's a lawyer who's going in and trying to haggle with her regarding how much um, Jake should have to pay her in order to get a divorce, it is a, you know, this movie is is kind of lightly comedic the whole time. I think at its core, this is a comedy, but that is probably more the most explicitly comedic scene in the whole movie. And all she has to do is stare and turn and the strength that she shows in that sequence. Hey, I think that scene alone probably um, clinched her, her nomination for the Oscars, but it's so great. All this, you just see this guy who thinks he has her, you know, by the neck. And he's just like, you, you, uh, $50, you'll be, you know, you'll have $50 to start your new life. You'll get a husband in a second. And he just starts going up 75. I can't believe it. What am I even saying? Well, I said it out. It goes. And eventually, you know, you find out at the very end of the movie that she got every bit of money that Jake and his uh, new suitor had uh, stowed away or she had stowed away. And he is taking advantage of, and uh, and it's great, you know. It, it it is. I suspect that that part of that perspective, that that point of view, um, comes from the uh, from Joan Micklin Silver, and not from the original novella. I think I think that what I most enjoyed about this movie comes from her adaptation of that material rather than from the material itself. I think that's probably true. Um, I do want to highlight, you know, as you sort of said earlier when you interrupted me, we're very rude, is that uh, this is like a very independent film. It, it, it wasn't part of the system at the time. And as I thought about that, I realized how few independent mi- films of this decade I know that aren't genre. So like exploitation, horror, kung fu, westerns. I'm in touch. I get it. I, I know all about it. But this sort of uh, drama that is not a Hollywood uh, star vehicle uh, from this decade, I feel like I don't really know them that well. Doug, I assume you're an expert. Uh, how would you compare this to other independent films of the time? Well, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't call myself an expert, certainly, but maybe. Oh, I've you're seen- not. That's weird. I said it on the <laughs> recording. So that means you are. All right. Well, as an expert, I'll say that. It, this is the kind of movie that probably could only have been made and distributed and gotten this level of profile in the 1970s, which right. I think a lot of fans of film and filmmaking, uh, they they point to the 1970s as maybe the height of independent filmmaking and the height of uh, creativity within Hollywood and the height of, you know, the freedom in regards to the kind of movies that could be made and distributed. And, uh, and- Doug, what about the post-Tarantino 90s? <laughs> <laughs> Seven heads in a duffel bag. <laughs> Well, <laughs> Suicide Kings aside, uh, I mean, <laughs> the, the things to do in Denver when you're dead aside. No, I mean, it's it. I really love the movies of the 1970s. Uh, I know that seems like a wide statement to make, but there is a there is a sense that the restrictions of the 1950s and most of the 1960s have come off that we haven't yet hit those blockbuster days of kind of post-Jaws, even though Jaws is obviously from 1976, but, you know, post-Star Wars, the big summer movie blockbuster thing, that there is a there's room for movies like Hester Street that can go out and be, in this case, wildly financially successful because of how they marketed and distributed it um, in a way that, unless you're a mid-budget Bloomhouse horror movie in the year 2020, it's probably not going to happen for you. That 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 a movie like Hester Street would probably, I mean, it might find some small critical acclaim, but unlikely to to be known on a level that this movie was known of at, at, at the time. I mean, when we, we're going to talk about in a moment an interview that Carol Kane did on Dick Cavett, and 
Dick, when Dick Cavett talks about Hester Street and her performance in it, it's from the perspective of everybody knows Hester Street. Everyone knows Carol Kane and her performance in it because it managed to, I guess, reach that kind of profile at the time. Though it's kind of strange to say that now in 2020 and that this is a movie that I almost never hear about. It's also weird because he's comparing it to Taxi. Like, for those of you who've never watched <laughs> fucking Taxi, let's talk. You probably know Hester Street. And I'm like, what weird world are you in, Dick Cavett? What is happening? Um, you know, I really like Dick Cavett as an interviewer, but I will say the more I watch of him, he's a real weird guy. Like, just everything about him just seems a little off. There's a part in this interview where uh, Carol Kane comes out and sits down. And he does his little dance as he's going around the table to go back to his seat. What an oddball. I mean, I've never – I, I wanted to ask you, but I didn't want to get us off topic. Is that, like, way he has of talking to the audience and just admitting, like, things that are happening while they're doing the show? Was that common for people? Yeah. There's such a casual nature to the show that I found – really confusing because i've never watched other <laughs> yeah, than no, that, clips that's his deal things. like that's his whole deal like he's talking to his friends in the audience as opposed to anything else it's one of the things i most liked about tom snyder's show that used to be after letterman uh, years back where it was very casual and and sometimes and it allowed weird tangents to go on in the conversation because it kind of feels like dick cavett doesn't know what he's going to talk about when he's talking to carol kane in this interview it uh, 100% the show feels like a podcast with an audience. Yes. That's the vibe. And it was very surprising to me. Uh, you already mentioned uh, briefly that interview. So let's go into the performances because that'll give us a chance to talk about the acclaim that Carol King got for her performance. But uh, just before that, I want to I want to give you a chance. Were there other performances besides uh, hers that you found? You know, worth mentioning. You already mentioned one, but were there others that you thought were interesting? Yeah. The only other one I want to bring up uh, is Mel Howard's performance as Bernstein because Mel Howard wasn't an actor. That's the, him as this performance. You know, I, I just it, he just enveloped that character so entirely. You can kind of see how because he he did envelop it, that he probably didn't have a lot of range in terms of the kind of performances he would give afterwards. But uh, Mel Howard, I think, was is probably best known as uh as an assistant director, he was an assistant director on a bunch of movies in right. the 70s and 80s, including Night of the Juggler, for anyone who's ever seen that movie. I but, hear that's great. I've never seen it. Yeah, yeah. I've heard it's really good, too. Uh, so so I really like his performance here. He, he obviously doesn't have to show a lot of range, but I think he's really, really good in it. Uh, there's also a small appearance, Liam. I don't even know if you noticed this, by Lynn Shay in this movie. I missed it. Where? When? She, so there's a part in the movie, it's very, very brief, where after being rebuked, Jake goes to see a prostitute. And that prostitute is played by the great Lin Shay. Oh, you know, I, I literally was like, this person is very familiar. Why do I know mm -hmm. this person? Yeah, there it is. Okay. That's so great. I was just thinking about Lin Shay uh, the other day because I think she's in something new. Is she still alive? She, she is still alive. Yeah, I think she's in something new. <laughs> yeah, I think... Uh... For half, remember, I think, for half a moment, I thought, wait, I'm, I have her confused with someone else. And I'm like, no, 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 it is Lin Shay. She's in a new thing. It's yeah. like, a, I think, a horror movie or something. Anyways. Um, uh, okay, well, let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, you know, Carol Kane is nominated for an Oscar. And we know, uh, but our audience may or may not know, that then she doesn't work for a full year. That is horrifying it, to me that just seems crazy that you would reach what is considered the height really of your profession and then your phone would just stop ringing um and as we know stop ringing until you get called for something that really you, you never really saw yourself doing in the first place it's i mean they talk about it in this interview as an oscar curse now i don't know if people still think about it as an oscar curse Maybe it's because of the, 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 the way that the Oscars are presented on television is a completely different animal than what it was in 1976. One of the things that I thought was most notable about watching the, that, that award be given out is when Louise Fletcher wins for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. She just rushes up to the stage, right? There isn't this person saying, she's this is her first nomination. Like, there isn't this slow build. She gets up there and she's talking within like a minute of, of it being announced. It's just a whole different structure for what that kind of thing is. But she was saying, yeah. She goes and, you know, really for, I think, a lot of the audience, she probably came out of nowhere, uh, did not win, but was nominated for this incredibly major award and then has to, you know, do auditions for a year and not get anything. And the reason that she said that this was likely is because 
if you do a job like like she did in Hester Street and and does such a great job enveloping that character, it's hard for people to see her as anything else. So unless they'd already also seen her in in like Carnal Knowledge or seen her in the last detail and knew the other roles that she could do, all they can see her as is as this character. Uh and like she said in that interview, there's not gonna be another character like that. There's not going to be a um uh, a put upon Jewish immigrant woman in another role like that, that she can just wait for it to come. So she then has to take the roles that she can get. She says that the role that she got after Hester Street in 1975 was in the movie, the world's greatest lover, which we'll eventually cover on this podcast, but that didn't come out until 1977. So all the roles that we'll see between now and then were likely either filmed beforehand or filmed after uh, the world's greatest lover. So she, yeah, she sat, she sat for a year after being nominated. Pretty incredible stuff and kind of a, a sad statement about how Hollywood views actresses. 100%. It is just unbelievable to me. And especially because I, I don't know about you, Doug, but part of my desire to do this specifically, we've already said, you know, probably too many times on the show that it's the variety of roles she's been able to sure. do. But it's also the idea that, like, for someone who has worked as much as she has, people still kind of forget who she is you know they forget you know like i've seen so many people be like oh yeah the the lady from kimmy schmidt and it's like you know i love kimmy schmidt but you need to watch yourself okay (laughs) because that is carol kane you know like and and you know that's from someone who as we already covered uh but for people who might be new to the show there's a ton of these things i didn't know about you know just knowing the small bit of her career i did i was like Yo, that's Carol Kane. And doing this show has just expanded it even more. So the idea that there was this nadir, oh, you know, you almost got an award. See you later, is like, uh, you know, it's not the end of the world. People have gone through worse things. But I just think for a creative person who's trying to make it in a, in this uh, field, it had to be emotionally destructive you know it and had to be we should we should really notice difficult. we should note as well that this isn't because she was nominated and didn't win because louise fletcher did win best actress and she had the exact same issue right people could only see her as nurse ratchet so it ended up hurting her career i think for really decades i mean what's the other major louise fletcher role that comes to mind when you think about her probably deep space nine or something like that i mean it's it's amazing and you compare that to say the best actor category, which has Jack Nicholson and Al Pacino and Walter Matthau and Maximilian Schell. I mean, they did not ha- slow down after their nominations. Yeah, I really mm, the 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 genderedness of it all is makes it even more confounding to me in a way and more frustrating. Um, but I don't have any great insight. I, I'm going to just have to go with what Carol Kane said, which is that, you know, she. She really does nail this role. It really is definitive in a lot of ways. It's not unrelated to roles that we've seen her in up until this point. And so to what extent is this about people are waiting for? And in this case, hopefully they weren't waiting for a movie about, you know, old Jewish culture. Because guess what? Yeah. There probably weren't that many going around. I don't picture someone being like, oh, here's Hester Street 2. Yeah, getting right. more <laughs> Hasidic. You know, like that's not... <laughs> That's not a thing, you know, <laughs> um, the world's great. So you're telling me, let's go back to this real quick. You're telling me that Harry and Walter go to New York, Annie Hall, Valentino. These were all filmed before the world's greatest lover. It That's not necessarily the case, right? It could okay. have just been that the world's greatest lover ended up being released afterwards. Uh, and so it's hard to tell the, the order. I mean, it, it's clear that Dog Day Afternoon was filmed probably before or right around the time of Hester Street because Dog Day Afternoon also was nominated for a bunch of awards at the Oscars that uh, that she was nominated in. So, but yeah, so apparently Harry and Walter go to New York. I guess maybe she also filmed that beforehand. Uh, and Andy Hall was probably filmed afterwards. But but all she says on that interview is that that she sat for a year, almost exactly a year, and then filmed The World's Greatest Lover. Wow. I think if I remember correctly from her interview with mark Marin, i think she sort of highlighted she was more surprised by the annie hall call yeah that came out of nowhere um and that was sort of like whatever not that she hadn't done the world's greatest lover but that that annie hall thing was like a really big deal to her um so i don't i don't remember now i kind of want to go back and listen to that interview again to kind of fill it all in 
Um, it's a strange interview because she's advertising or, or promoting Jumpin' Jack Flash at the time. She right, comes out and gives right. – remember she gives she gives yeah, she's a got watches. Watch. Well, what's funny is she's got a <laughs> bag of watches for the whole audience. And instead of like trying to hand them out, she just goes, so I got them. And just puts them on the floor and you're like, all right, well, that was anti-climat. No one in the audience is like, woo, gold watches from Jumpin' Jack But I mean, how – what a weird thing to have like one of the actresses from your movie come out with – Swag, right, with gold watches, and just in like a plastic bag that she just brought out. I it, mean, it really felt like they should have put the watches under the seats or something, Oprah yeah. style. Well, and even more, when he's like, "So you got a clip?" and she's like, "I don't think so. I don't think we do have a clip. I'm, I'm almost a hundred percent sure we don't have a clip." Well, what would the clip have been? I I don't know that either. You know, like, it's just ridiculous. Um, anyways. Look, we've already said it. We don't need to highlight again. But, you know, this is an Oscar-nominated performance. For me, I am not surprised that she lost to Nurse uh, was Ratched. Yeah. You should know that since they have a TV series called that right now. Well, okay. <laughs> Side note. Is that a is that a prequel? I don't understand what that TV show is about. Yeah, it's is a that, prequel. That it seems like an insane thing that exists in the world. I have to say, uh, look, I... <laughs> This is going to make me sound like a complete asshole, but I feel like I have a moral objection to the idea of of someone taking this character and recontextualizing them with a prequel in this particular kind of way. It just feels kind of gross. But I guess eventually, I guess it's sort of like that Bates Motel show from a few years ago. And they're going to eventually, if the show continues, they're going to adapt One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest into the show. So if they do that, I guess it's okay because it's like an entirely different adaptation. But if I look at this character and it's supposed to be the character from Milos Forman's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, I don't. That's a lot of baggage. I don't want to take into that that movie. That movie tells me all I need yeah. to know about that character. Yeah, I agree. I find the entire idea poorly. You know what I mean? Like, what's the opposite of sold in the room? Because that's what it is for me. <laughs> like the first sentence, and I'm saying no is how I feel about that. Um, but you know, it it exists. It is what it is. Uh, I'm not surprised she lost to uh, that performance. I think that's one of what one of the performances on that list you know we we watched the actual oscar night um and i was like okay that's what i would have chosen i I get it but i still think that performance take away what flew over the cougar's nest i think carol kane gives an oscar worthy performance what do you think there's a part of me that thinks that that maybe if they pushed for best supporting actress that maybe she might have had more of a but this is a lead role and what you find out as you watch the movie is that this movie is her point of view and that's what it's all supposed to be even if the movie if she's just in the background and not actually even referred to in the first half hour i mean she doesn't get to roll around at a bunch of baked beans like ann margaret did in tommy so uh it's not as showy of a role as some of these other ones but this is a high level performance and it is one that you would hope would have gotten her notice to the level where she would get would be getting offers all over. But if all you have ever seen her in is this role, I guess it's somewhat understandable that people could could pigeonhole her as that kind of performance. But what's funny for me is when I think of Carol Kane, I think of her as being more kind of explosive and dynamic, completely opposite of the kind of character she has in Hester Street. Yeah, I do think that at some point she had to expand beyond people's expectations of her. And I don't think it's just this role. It's the things we've seen up till now that that she's sold quiet and sincere. And that's not, I think, what she would come to be known for. Which is Tell not... me more. Tell me, Liam, now more about what does she look like at the Oscars? <laughs> so <laughs> we do want to mention to y'all, you know, at the Oscars, they have that shot, right? of all the various nominated actors or actresses or whatever you want to say. <laughs> and in ours, it, or for her, she is in the middle because she's the last person announced. So she's the biggest. And she her hair is even more retro than it is in this film. It looks like she said, you know the big bun you gave me for Hester Street? Make it even <laughs> bigger and slightly more witchy. And then I need a necklace that covers my whole neck uh, so that it looks kind of like a like a... Almost like a S&M choker. Give me one of those. Yeah. Uh, and then do my makeup so it looks like I haven't slept for about a month. And that's what she looks like. And I just was like, what is going... Especially because the, the style at this particular Oscars is very understated. Like, sure. if you notice, a lot of the women Absolutely. look very professional. Like, uh, Isabella Johnny, you know, she she's not over the top. 
you know, it's it, each outfit looks kind of like the style of the time apparently was not huge. Well, I mean, very... this is probably pre the, you know, red. Car- I mean, not that they didn't have a red carpet, but it's certainly nothing compared to what it's like today. Right. Well, regardless, no one spent an hour on their hair the way it feels like Carol Kane did. You know what I mean? <laughs> no one went, give me the most retro neck choker that you can find that's what i want to wear she just she looks like she's there to cast a spell on the proceedings <laughs> which is then weird that she lost i guess her spell was i really like one flew over the cuckoo's nest <laughs> uh well i'll put uh, a photo down in the uh the notes for today's episode so everyone can check it out it's just look we're not criticizing it obviously no it's great it's actually awesome but but uh, we mentioned before in performances that that she has a very striking appearance in a lot of these roles and she certainly was striking in that night <laughs> during the Oscars. Yeah. so that was uh 1975's hester street what are we covering next doug well this is a big one liam you already referred to it on the next episode of praising kane we're going to be looking at the movie that was competing uh, with a lot of for a lot of those awards down that oscar night dog day afternoon directed by sydney lumet I'm pretty excited. This is one of my favorite films. I'm uh, pretty interested to think about it in context of Carol Kane, though, because I don't think I've done that in the past. I focus so much on some of the other performances. It'll be interesting to to think about her in this role. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for listening to uh, Cinema Smorgasbord presents Praising Kane. We're so glad that you could join us on this journey. Uh, Doug, if they would like to know more about the show, where should they go? Well, they can check out all sorts of Halloween-y goodness over on Cinepunks.com, which has all the most recent episodes of Cinema Smorgasbord. Uh, and also check out a lot of the other content. They're celebrating Cineween over at Cinepunks right now. You can see a lot of uh, horror and genre-related content on there right now. But if you wanted to uh, find out about all of our different kinds of content with Cinema Smorgasbord, go over to Cinemasmorgasbord.com. You can subscribe. Uh, you can give us feedback. You can leave us a review. You can also find our social media links. We're on Twitter at Cinema Smorg. That's S-M-O-R-G. Uh, or you can do a search for Cinema Smorgasbord on Facebook as well. Or, hey, you know what? You don't like the podcast. You just like our personalities. You can always follow Liam on Twitter. He's there at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. Or me, Doug Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. Thank you, Doug. And thank you, dear listener. Feel free to hit us up with any <laughs> feedback uh, let us know how the table read was for Princess Bride. And, you know, just continue to be awesome. Have a good night. Wenn mit Masel gesunden Leben selbst der Töchterl mir will neues geben, will ich tanzen mir hopp, 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 aropanol von Gau. Will ich tanzen, neu will ich tanzen, Europa neu von Gau. Spielt was Morim, spielt mit Leben, Serste Töchterl Heinz.